Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. This is the beginning. This is the day. You are watching the unfolding of one of history's great adventures. Man's colonization of space beyond the stars. Reaching out into other worlds from our desperately overcrowded planet, a series of deep thrust telescopic probes have conclusively established a planet orbiting the star Alpha Centauri as the only one within range of our technology able to furnish ideal conditions for human existence. The Robinson family was selected from more than two million volunteers for its unique balance of scientific achievement, emotional stability, and pioneer resourcefulness. This is Alpha Control. We are at zero minus one hour and 15 minutes and still holding. At exactly launch plus eight hours, inertial guidance system destroy. Hail is 40 number. Come in, please. Do you read me? Mission accomplished. What do I do now? What clever instructions do you have for me now? How much more money are you going to pay me for this excursion? Good, good. Stay with it now. What the devil are you doing aboard? Hello, Alpha Control. This is Lunar Tracking Station Copernicus. Jupiter 2 moving at incredible speed, far off course beyond range of our tracking instruments. Mr. President, status control on Jupiter 2. As of this moment, the spacecraft has passed the limits of our galaxy. It's presumed to be hopelessly lost in space. What's it made of? Probably some alloy we've never even heard of. It even baffled the spectrometer. Where do you think it's from? I don't know. I've never seen anything like that in my life. It looks like a ghost ship. It's moving in. No, we are. It's pulling us. I can't break away. We're going to collide. Get to the back of the bank, all of you. The rocket's are malfunctioning. He's done something to the controls. Well, that's what he was trying to tell us. We'll have to let him out. Oh. No time. Go below and make sure everyone's strapped in. It's going to be a rough one. What about you? I'll stay with the controls as long as I can, then I'll ride the landing up in one of the freezing tubes. Go on.
Is it okay? It's not exactly a tropical paradise, Penny. Better break up the parkas. Conclusion. Environment can sustain human life. End of report. Nice work. That does not compute. See something? Oh. A giant! Do you realize that unless I get some heat somewhere, I'll freeze to death? In precisely one hour, 12 minutes, and 58 seconds. In a matter of hours, we're going to be in danger of roasting alive. Do you mean to say you're going to pay any attention to what Smith says after all he's done? Now, we were headed south. I say we keep going that way. Now, that's enough out of you. Whether you like it or not, I'm going to try to save your life along with the others. We get that shelter rigged now. A deadly intruder swooping in on us with the speed of light, spitting flame and cosmic dust, burning up our precious oxygen, spreading its lethal virus. It's honed in on us all right and approaching fast. There's just a possibility it may change its course. Till we know for sure, we better sit tight. It's getting awfully close. Hapgood's my name, boys. Jimmy Hapgood. I'm John Robinson. Howdy. This is Don West. How do you do? Oh, my son, Will. Hello there, boy. <clears throat> oh, that's Dr. Zachary Smith. Howdy, Doc. If you just... Is that a name? Like Penny? Of course. But you could try to be Mr. Nobody, couldn't you? If you just let me see a little bit of you. I don't understand. I don't understand you. Are you native to this speck of dust? I beg your pardon? This globule, this, this planetoid. Oh no, not me. You have the wrong party. If it's natives you're after, there's a whole tribe of them right down there in the valley. The natives here are called Robinsons. I could show you the way. I know how you all feel about me. Another mouth to feed, another thirst to quench. Oh, yes, let's get rid of him. This is our chance. That's the way your evil minds worked, wasn't it? No! It's begun. I can feel it. It's churning in my blood. All right, we'll get you out. Oh, stay away from me! Oh, leave me alone! Oh! Did you find out anything? It seems we have visitors on this planet. Really? Did you see any of them, Dad? No, but Will did. Apparently, they came in with equipment on a maser. Matter transference again. I wonder why they haven't come to meet us. Because their purpose is to destroy us, that's why. Our visitors are probably as concerned about us as we are about them, Dr. Smith. Well, does anyone care to make a comment? All right, then I will. And it can be summed up in three words. The thought machine. Well, I guess maybe we've all been relying on it too much, John, but... But why work when the machine can do it for you? Will, up to now, this family's been getting along very well. We have respect and love for one another. And you cannot wish for those things with that. 
Dad, you know those baby rockets I sent up with those SOS messages? Well, how can I ever forget those? Well, couldn't we build a small space vehicle and float it up on a balloon? And maybe there'd be enough plasma fuel to get it out into space. Be kind of like people are a shipwreck building a raft. What's this? Look. I have just inspected the galley. I regret to inform you that it has been looted. The barbarian has struck. And he took our hand. Good heavens, she's one of them. Signal overload. Responsible for burnout. What signal? The signal that got me back here, I guess. Back from where? Earth. Earth? Well, I've been on Earth all morning. At a little place called Hatfield Four Corners in Vermont. They sure are behind the times there. But they wouldn't even let me call out the control to send a rescue ship. They thought it was some kind of nut. Oh, well, I think you'd better watch that imagination of yours. Or we might all think the same thing. There's no need for introductions. I know all of you. I will introduce myself. I'm known as the Keeper, and I come from a world 10 million light years away. Is the Keeper your name or just a title? No, that is a profession. I collect the creatures of the universe, two of every kind. Stay back. Oh, now, you don't think old Tucker is going to hurt you, do you? You ask anyone about Alonzo P. Tucker, they'll tell you he ain't got a shred of harm in him. You're completely mad. You cannot trap a spirit in a cage. Can't you realize that what we're dealing with is a destructive, primitive force? Uncle Thaddeus is not primitive. And if he's destructive, it's only because you've offended him. It has been many decades since we left the planet. We presumed you to be lost. Until recently, I was without full power. And Earthboy has enabled me to function fully again. So now Earth people are on the planet, hmm? Several. Are you interested in them? Yes, indeed. We have great need for new subjects for our experiments. Please don't! Yeah, yeah, he'll break it and nobody can get out forever and ever. Again? Oh. Hey. No. no, please give it to me. No. Stay here. Forever isn't such a long time. You'll like it and you'll never have to grow old. But don't you understand? I don't want to stay here. I don't want to stay young forever. Everybody does. I watch them through the mirror. I'm exceedingly sorry, Father. You did well, Earth Boy. Thank you, sir. You showed great courage. The truth is, I was too scared to run. Even the bravest man experiences fear. He will grow well, big and strong. It will not do him any good. He allows himself to do the work of women. And he does not truly have courage. He was trapped by the animal. Even the most timid creature will fight if there is no escape. That's not true. I'm as brave as you are. You are weak and soft, like all boys of your planet. Maybe you'd like to find out how weak and soft I am. Nothing would please me more. Enough. If you have differences, they will be settled later. Return to your family. They will be concerned. You're welcome to come to our campsite, sir. Perhaps later. Goodbye, sir.
I am the trader at your service, sirs. How do you do? I'm Dr. Zachary Smith from the planet Earth. <laughs> and this is Mr. Will Robinson. I am very delighted indeed to meet you. From the planet Earth, you... My, you are a long way from home. We are indeed. Where do you come from, Mr. Trader? Me? Why, I am from everywhere. A citizen of the whole galaxy. That's what I am. His most exalted majesty, defender of rights, sword and buckler of liberties, most sublime and willing sacrifice, Zachary I, King of Andronica. Hi, Dr. Smith. In the future, you will address us as your majesty. Come here, boy. What have you come to borrow this time, Everett? I ain't come to borrow. Now that our crop's in, why, we've got everything we need. I guess you'll be leaving soon. Sounds as though you're glad to see us go. You haven't been exactly friendly neighbors now, have you? Well, I, I could be right friendly if you'd only let me. Don't that sound inviting? Yes, but not for me. Why not? Because I've got other plans now. Why don't you be a good girl and go back where you belong? Oh, I could put a spell on you if I put my mind to it. Go ahead. Now, if you'll excuse me. There's uh, quite a file on the Robinson party in our office. You see, my office has kept track of all of your activities, especially yours, Dr. Smith. If that remark is meant as a slur upon my character, I resent it exceedingly. Sir, if you have a complaint, I suggest you file it with my superiors. Indeed. Mrs. Robinson, did you know that Ohan was a fugitive from the law? Yes, I did. Then you realize that you broke the law. You are guilty of aiding and abetting a criminal. Now, I could place you all under arrest for that. Oh, that won't be necessary, I'm sure. Now, Officer Bollocks, all you're interested in is Ohan. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, let me assure you, sir, he's not here. In that case, if you don't mind, I shall search your spaceship. Isn't our word good enough for you? Nothing personal, Mrs. Robinson. I just do not trust anyone. Come with me. Domo. You really are a princess. <laughs> of course. What is your name? Will Robinson, sir. I have told Will Robinson of our army. I would like you to show him some of our warriors. Yes, your highness. such devotion. You have a remarkable son, Professor. <laughs> Dr. Smith, you'd better explain, and quickly. He's reversing the irreversible. <laughs> what do you mean, Dr. Smith? He'll be your own darling little Willie again, and when I go, I shall come back my own former youthful, handsome self. <laughs> oh, 
Are you crazy, old fool? John, please, go get Penny, will you? Listen, we've got to get over there. You're coming too, Foxy, Grandpa. Steady, Vega, steady. I still have a delicate back, you know. Steady. Goodbye, Dad. I love you. What did you say? I love you, Dad. Why do you hesitate? Push him off. No. I order you to obey. No, it's not. It's not right. Push him off. I command you. Don't listen to him, Dad. We all love you. You cannot disobey me. Do as I say. Nothing stronger than the feeling we have for you, Dad. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen. 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 Yes, well, he's gone. What do you think chased him off, sir? Love, Will. In all the worlds and galaxies of this universe, there is nothing stronger. Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're finally doing our long-awaited special Season 1 wrap episode. But before we begin, sir, I have a special announcement to make. This is our 50th podcast episode, which I think is a fitting milestone for this special event, don't you? Yes, I do notice you're getting a little gray around the temples. <laughs> yeah, the big 5-0, I guess. <laughs> Break out the black balloons. Mm. Celebration time. Yeah, I remember when I turned 50, Lisa said, wow, now you qualify for AARP. That was, <laughs> that was supposed to be my big surprise. <laughs> now for a little riddle. What does the 50th episode of the Lost in Space podcast and the end of season one and the 50th birthday of a person all have in common? Hmm, I'm not sure, Riddler. What is the answer? It's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, there are there's still some good episodes, but the the high quality, consistently high quality of Lost in Space is about to take a hit because it seems like they uh, have made a decided effort to focus on the fantasy and the whimsical and gone are the super serious follow the leader episodes. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that, but let's not skip past our uh, <laughs> enjoyment of reliving the the glories of season one. Oh yeah, and there's still you know there's still something to enjoy past the life of fifty. You know there is Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> wow, carry on, sir. <laughs> that that didn't take long. I'm told. I, I that's that's all secondhand. I don't know. Uh-huh. Well, I think this is going to be a fun show, and here's what we have in mind for the agenda, folks. We're going to start out talking about the highlights of the first season of Lost in Space. 
Now, typically when people do a season review, they'll tell you their favorite episode was this or their top three, but that's not what we're going to do today. No. Why, you ask? Because you have to make it complicated, that's why. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> no, really, it's just two reasons. I, I always think those things are a little bit lame, so we're going to delve a little bit deeper in it. And the other problem is there's just too many good episodes in season one. It's really hard to pick, you know, a top three or so forth. And how do you define good? In what way are you defining good? So you're going to parse it out some. Yeah, yeah. you do. And it's going to be kind of like the Academy Awards where they have, you know, best uh, sci-fi or best horror theme or best comedy, something like that. So we've picked some categories or themes of episodes, and we'll get a chance to share with you our favorites from those. You'll, you'll get the idea as we run along. We'll also maybe talk about who our favorite writer was, or sound effect, that sort of thing. So, Oh, okay. So if this is going to be done like the Oscars, every time I give an answer, can I then go off on a tangent, a political tirade about how I hate Trump or whatever? <laughs> you, I mean, it's so fashionable these days. It only seems fitting, right? It does. But just remember, I've got the orchestra standing by to start drowning you out at any moment you go too far. <laughs> and that, that long, eight-foot-long cane that's going to reach out and snag me. Okay, I get it. Yeah. Well, we might also mention a few things that we thought could have gone better, but mostly this is going to be on the positive side, I have a feeling. After we finish the wrap-up part of the show, we'll preview some of the changes and exciting new things to look for in the new season of Lost in Space, as well as what you can expect from our podcast as we get lost in Season 2. Finally, we'll finish up by summarizing the cliffhanger for the Season 2 premiere, Episode 30, titled Blast Off into Space, which is a fun one. Well, let's get down to it then. If you're ready, Kurt, we'll take a look at the first season, the black and white episodes of Lost in Space. Are you ready? That's a roger, roger. I'm buckled up and ready for blast off. Okay, then. All right, then. Well, let's start off with our nominations for the best sci-fi concept episode. And Kurt, I'm going to pick episode 10, The Sky is Falling. It's got a script by Barney Slater, directed by Soby Martin. This story is about a small family of three advanced mute aliens from the planet Toron that beam into the Robinsons' neighborhood. Dr. Smith plays the suspicious xenophobe, and John and Will play the peacemakers. But inevitably, there's a culture clash, and misunderstanding almost leads to an interstellar war on preplanus. I thought there was a lot to like about this one beyond the theme. I liked the noble look of the Taurons, the art design of their settlement, their costumes, and even their little futuristic weapon with the acrylic <laughs> stock was, was kind of neat. I also thought it was cool that they didn't speak English, something that the series would go to lengths to address in the future whenever an alien did. In fact, they didn't speak at all, which was kind of cool. Originally, they were supposed to have this tonal language, but that's not really explained in the episode. You just get a hint of it when the alien boy is called home. I also liked the fact that the story had a theme, and their visit had a lingering continuity with the abandoned matter transfer unit showing up in a later episode. And in fact, the planet Toron is mentioned several times in future episodes. For example, in Return from Outer Space, The Space Trader, and All That Glitters. You know, it's funny, Kurt, I went back and listened to our review of this, and I was a little hard on the morality play aspect of this one, and I think it is a little heavy-handed at times, but the sci-fi elements of this still make it well worth a look. Those aliens had some cool names. I don't know if you remember those or not. 
uh, Donald Trump, uh, Melania, and Barron. But, you know, I was relieved at the end they didn't actually end up staying because they probably would have polluted the planet with all these Trump towers. <laughs> I thought I was setting you up for that joke. I'm sorry. I should have told you. You know me too well. <laughs> so anyway, I, yeah, I really like this one. I thought this one had a pretty cool sci-fi element to it. Uh-huh. Well, uh, I agree. That was a great episode. In fact, it was almost a contender for one of my favorite seven best episodes, but it was edged out by the others just because they had more eye candy. You know, Sky is Falling is all about using your brain and imagination, just like Return from Out of Space is, but there's not a lot of exciting images or special effects, but very exciting concepts and tension. And I do love the fact that Return from Outer Space kind of ties in with the continuity of, in fact, it doesn't kind of, it directly ties in with the continuity of the sky is falling because that's where the matter transfer machine comes from. But my favorite sci-fi concept episode was the derelict. I love the creepy ghost ship, the very different aliens, those space barnacles or space bubbles as most people call them. The way that they communicated with electronic sounds or shock sounds and the uh, nightmare soundtrack. So... It was kind of a one-off, though, because you never really have another episode like it. You don't have aliens like it. You don't have them trapped on an alien ship like that. Uh, It was just from start to finish, it was very unusual. But, of course, so was Sky Was Falling. But, like I said, there was just more eye candy in it. So that's why, uh, from the science fiction standpoint, it just seems so otherly worldly that I had to go with The Derelict. Ah, terrific choice. The Derelict, yes. Great Peter Packer script course based on a story by Shimon Winselberg and directed by Alexander Singer. I just love that scene, the signature scene when the Jupiter 2 gets swallowed whole by that massive alien ship and of course, I think you're right too. It does have a very otherworldly feel about it. The outside of the ship is very machine-like, very technologically based, but the inside, it almost has this biological feel to it, you know, with all that Spanish moss hanging down from the ceiling and the bubbles everywhere. Oh, you're giving Irwin a pass. It wasn't Spanish Moss. It was biomatter stolen from that other movie that they were filming, not the, the Fox lot. Or- <laughs> the, the Fantastic Voyage, exactly. Fantastic Voyage, yeah. <laughs> and it still just blows me away that he thought that nobody was going to catch on because, I mean, the movie hadn't even come out yet, and he's going to be broadcasting on television, you know. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That guy's really got nerve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who's going to stop me? I'm Erwin Allen. By the time they see it, it'll be too late. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, What a guy. All right. The Sky is Falling and The Derelict, and I agree. Both excellent sci-fi concept episodes. All right. The next category we're going to talk about is the action-adventure category. And my pick for this one is episode four. There were giants in the earth. This one was written by Carrie Wilbur, directed by Leo Penn. This has some great adventure themes to it, principally the confrontation with the Cyclops, which was just, I remember seeing that as a kid and I thought it was just amazing. Um, Great special effects. And that scene when the chariot pulls up in the canyon and the Cyclops is up on the ledge, and he's throwing those big boulders down to the chariot. You know, that one eye does really affect your stereo vision, I guess, because he just can't seem to hit the damn chariot. (laughs) 
the Cyclops is just one threat. The other threat they have is the whole fact that they've discovered the planet's temperatures dropping, and that's why they're in the chariot to begin with. You know, they're racing to get south before they all mm-hmm. turn into human popsicles. But um, I thought it was a great episode. It's still using a lot of that unaired pilot footage, but it's very well blended with the new footage that features Dr. Smith. The music is good. The stuff that was scored by Herman Stein is great. And all the Bernard Herman music from The Day the Earth Stood Still is really good, too. So I thought that was a great one. And you also get to hear Bill Mooney perform his rendition of Greensleeves, although that's not... Uh, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly out of key, but, you know, hey. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you said, and it's still using footage from that unaired pilot, but blah, blah, blah. You almost sound apologetic for it. There's nothing to apologize for. That movie, unlike all the other scenes that Irwin Allen recycles, this had never been seen before. I mean, the only people who had seen it were the, the execs that Fox had seen. So uh, this was the first time anybody saw it. So that doesn't really count as recycling. That's just kind of borrowing from yourself. And the budget on that was greater than any single episode of Lost in Space. So this was Cadillac material. And I think that's one of the reasons those first several episodes are so exceptional. So I agree with you. That was my choice, too. That was the best action adventure episode. It's solid from start to finish. And in some ways, I actually like the Lost in Space Cyclops better than the Ray Harryhausen Cyclops and Jason and the Argonauts. But I think that's only because I love watching, you know, Will zap him with the laser pistol. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seems like that was so cool. And I also enjoyed the very atmospheric cliff hangar at the end with the lost city and you know thank god for the cyclops because the way you described it they were trying to avoid the the freeze but you know can you imagine if the episode had just been we got to get out of here before it freezes oh i'm shivering i'm so cold you know it just would not have had any of that power but uh the the cyclops delivered and uh when he's sticking in the the palm tree and trying to mm-hmm. stick it shoving it inside that cave you know it kind of reminds me of going in there with a, a q-tip you know so I'm trying to get out of that i i can't quite reach that uh, that wax it's like oh uh he he really is uh frightening and yeah. you know those those two guys are still inside there. Yeah. So uh, no, I loved it. Uh, the only thing about it was it's just too bad the Cyclops never returns in all his glory, except uh, except in miniature form and <laughs> running out of the keeper's ship. But I guess yeah, there was illusion that there's more than one Cyclops, though. I mean, yes. There was. But we never, they just don't follow up. I mean, that that happens with a lot of the monsters. It happens with the, the mutant and one of our dogs is missing. There's really no reason to believe that there's not more than one. And even if there isn't more than one, the one escapes. So why does he come back? I mean, there's a lot of sand on that planet. And uh, he never he never makes another appearance. Yeah. I guess it's a case of always leave the audience wanting more. Isn't that the old expression from show business? So Yeah, but... Um, you know, if you brought him back, it might have been seen as sort of like, oh, mm. uh, he, he just doesn't command the attention he did. But I understand that they do do that in season two with what are called the Satacons or The Satacons, yes. Satacons. So they make yeah. a, a follow-up appearance. And, uh, and they do that with another character, too. And in both instances, oh, the woman from the Green Dimension, she appears twice, doesn't yes. she? Yes. So there are repeat offenses in Lost in Space, but I think in most instances, they never capture lightning twice. So Yeah. Well, I know for a fact the only season one guest that shows back up in season two is, is Tucker, Captain Tucker. He comes back. Ah, okay. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that, but am I correct in assuming it's not quite as dramatic when he does? 
No, it doesn't have the same impact oh. as the Sky Pirate ending. But, you know, he's basically playing the same character. So Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, all right. Well, we think alike, then. I guess all eyes are on the Cyclops for the action-adventure category. Great. Well, moving right along, the next category let's talk about is the family-themed, or you might call it the sentimental episode. And my choice for this one is one you already mentioned, which might seem like an odd choice because it's really an all-about-will story, not so much a family-themed tale. But I'm going with episode 15, Return from Outer Space. This one was written by Peter Packer, directed by Nathan Juran, and it was a one-off episode. It's always been a sentimental favorite of mine. The setup, of course, is the family's in trouble because their food preservation unit is on the fritz, but Will convinces the robot to program that derelict matter transfer unit from the Taurons to send him back to Earth for help. And Will does beam back to Earth, and that's when this one turns into a sappy but sweet version of It's a Wonderful Life. You get that holiday vibe, which is wonderful, and it's in a little small town, Hatfield Four Corners, Vermont, at Christmas time. It's got the tracked music from Miracle on 34th Street, and I thought Bill Mooney's performance is stellar. I think you gotta love the way that Will winds up being the hero in the end, and he brings back that carbon tet, almost missing the uh, beam back to pre-planus. And oh, by the way, that's the first time, and it may be the only time we ever hear the name of the planet the Robinsons are stuck on, pre-planus. I just think that's a great episode, Kurt. I can watch that one just about any time. Well, that's another favorite, and it definitely made my top seven list, despite no real monsters or dramatic special effects. It's exciting from start to finish, and it's frustrating, too. Your stomach is in knots, just you know, hoping that somebody is going to believe Will, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he makes it back in time. But it's not my favorite for sentimental reasons, because there is one, I think, that outdoes it. And that would be All That Glitters with Dr. Zachary Smith. The first and perhaps only time he's willing to sacrifice himself to bring Penny back. I mean, that just chokes me up every time just thinking about it. And I think that even outdoes uh, Follow the Leader, that scene at the very end there, which is also a very sentimental scene. So I just think that that is so sentimental. You just, nothing can compete with it. Oh, yeah. All That Glitters, man. That is such a powerful ending to that story. Barney Slater outdid himself writing that one. And I thought the direction that Harry Harris gave was awesome as well. But, you know, I think what made that ending so powerful was the fact that it was Dr. Smith. It was so out of character for him to be willing to sacrifice himself. And yeah, just... I, think that, I think you just put your finger on it. That's why it beats Follow the Leader. Because even Follow the Leader, it, it gets to us. We expect that. Of, I mean, it's the whole time we're thinking that John, you know, we're expecting it. Sure. But with Zachary Smith, it's unexpected. It's completely, I mean, this guy has had a Ebenezer Scrooge experience. So it, it really, it really stood out. It did stand out, even, even if the change of character didn't last all that long for old Zachary. <laughs> Somebody might as well take it. It might as well be me. <laughs> Uh, great choice. Yeah, that's, that's a super episode. Well, 
right. Well, let's move along to the next category. And this would be our favorite comedy episode of the series. And as the series went along, there's a lot of contenders for this one, Kurt. But the one that I'm going to pick is episode 24, His Majesty Smith. And that was written by Peter Packer and directed by Soby Martin. It's another sentimental favorite of mine, especially because of the comedy that Jonathan Harris delivers. I mean, he is absolutely on fire during this episode. <laughs> There's some particularly great scenes with Smith negotiating with Nexus, the android, and of course, the hilarious Daddy Zack scenes. <laughs> I think they had some great use of split-screen special effects in this one, much better than the earlier attempts that were done in The Oasis. And you know, this may have been the point in the series where it became obvious that Harris's status as special guest star was more than just consolation prize billing. There was something very special about Dr. Smith, and nobody, not Irwin, not CBS, or the rest of the cast, was going to write him out of the series unless he got hit by a car on the way to the studio. <laughs> you know, this one may not be the reluctant stowaway, but I never get tired of this one. Well, it's a great one, and I loved it from start to finish. But I did think there was one episode that was even funnier as far as Dr. Smith's lines and his performance, and that would be The Space Trader. I thought, uh, I mean, because you kind of got two Dr. Smiths for the price of one in that episode when you stop and think about it, you know? I just love seeing the master of lies and deceit meet his space merchant match. And it's just a delightful episode, and watching those two guys go at it was wonderful. It is. It is. There's a lot of competition for this category. I was going to mention War of the Robots because that has some great bits between Dr. Smith and the robot when he's dressing the robot down, his favorite punching bag. But uh, <laughs> the uh, end of the line, the joyride is over. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Great. Yeah, I love The Space Trader. That's another great Barney Slater script, and the direction's great by Nathan Juran as well. But uh, no, I just giggle all the way through that one. It's awesome. <laughs> All right, well, let's move along here. The next category is the horror or scary-themed episode. And this one also has, well, it has a couple of contenders. The one that I picked may or may not be an obvious choice for you. I'll, I'll let you tell me what you think. But I picked episode eight, Invaders from the Fifth Dimension, which is also a pretty cool sci-fi concept episode. It was written by Shimon Winselberg and directed by Leonard Horn. The scary part about this was... Well, there was a number of things. The design of those aliens I thought was scary. I thought that was a great design because they had those big bulbous heads, which you've seen before. But the cool part was they had no mouths and really not much of a nose. So that was kind and, of... And the uninostral, don't forget that. Right, the uninostral. And they had these clawed, scary hands. And some people say they were kind of floating in space. But to me, and maybe it's just watching it on the Blu-ray, it's kind of obvious they're wearing you know black robes. But either way... It's pretty cool. And we get one of those blacked-out limbo sets. But the creepiness of this one was really enhanced by its simplicity. I mean, there was very little extra furnishing in there. It was kind of like you were inside, as they said, a fifth dimension. So in that case, the limbo set kind of made sense. And it had this really strange music accompanying the inside of the ship. You know, it would really make your skin crawl. So I thought there was a lot about this that just really put you on edge and had that horror feel to it. Plus, it gave us 
one of the episode's many memorable lines, which is... Shall I destroy? <laughs> no, wait. They may still be of some use to us. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. And, and it was great how that guy comes back in another episode as a voice. Which episode was it? Oh, it was The Ring and All That Glitters, right? Exactly. Oh. Exactly. Well done. We're, we're learning a lot. You know, Dr. Smith was also kind of returned to his sinister ways in this episode. He was not nearly as silly as he was played in Welcome Stranger or Mr. Nobody. So I thought that one qualified for a scary episode. Oh, yeah, it definitely qualifies, but I don't think it takes the cake. I think that one would go to the derelict as well. I think the derelict had a lot more scare factor to it. And I just based this on, you know, I've got the advantage because my girls are a lot younger than uh, your kids are, a a three-year-old and a six-year-old. And they both, they were both hiding behind me during the derelict a lot, but they weren't really frightened by the fifth dimension. Ah, But the other episode that I can't gauge them on that because I haven't allowed them to watch it yet would be Follow the Leader. Worrying about whether or not Will is going to be kidnapped to be used as the guidance system for aliens. Okay, I'll grant you that's scary, but it doesn't compete with the thought of him being thrown off a cliff by his own father. Okay, so uh, the Follow the Leader definitely outdoes uh, Fifth Dimension, and it's kind of a toss-up between that and The Derelict, as far as I'm concerned, as far as the, the two big, scary episodes yep. of, of Season 1. That's interesting. So the girls were more frightened by The Derelict than they were Invaders. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, personally, I think it was just the constant scary music of The Derelict. <laughs> it, was, mm. it was on full blast the whole time, and it was always creepy audio going down for that entire episode. Well, you've made that point before. You said the girls react to that music sometimes before anything's even shown on screen. That's the power of the soundtrack for this series, I think. Yes, even though Erwin uh, Allen dumbed it down on the monsters, he never dumbed it down on the music. And I guess that's because it would have cost more money to re-record. But he stuck with that atmospheric music that they had, and it oftentimes made up for what were lackluster alien costumes. Yep. Can't argue with you there. All right, we're coming up to our final episode category here, and this is the one I'm calling my guilty pleasure episode. And for this one, I'm picking episode 25. Yes, The Space Croppers, written by Peter Packer and directed by Soby Martin. I mean, come on. You get a wolfman, monster plants come back, Sherry Jackson... (laughs) In uh, Daisy Dukes. What's not to love about this one, Kurt? (laughs) Space Hillbillies. I know this one's the one that makes a lot of the hardcore fans just roll their eyes. Yes, it's season two tier silliness, but I still find myself giggling and grinning all through it. So go ahead, diehard Lost in Space fans. Hate me if you want, but I like it. Well, I, I agree with that title. It's a bit corny at times, but it's so funny. And it has that incredible sexual tension between Sherry Jackson and myself. Uh, I mean, Don. (laughs) I just can't peel my eyes off that episode. It's flawed, to be sure, but so are various family members, you know, but you you can't help but still love them. And that's how that episode is. It is. It's a great guilty pleasure one. That's cool. All 
right, let's do a little bit more detail work here. Let's talk about some favorite character moments for the cast or the characters in the show. And starting off with Professor Robinson, my favorite character moment is going to have to be from the episode we just reviewed, Follow the Leader. Before we go any further, Professor, I should like to state that I did everything in my power to help you yesterday. Well, of course you did. Then you're not angry at me? Certainly not. Have some breakfast. Why, thank you. As a matter of fact, I am a bit hungry today. I'll just have a... Don't touch that food. But you just said that... You're not going to eat any food from this table today. And if you don't join us tomorrow on time for breakfast, you're not going to eat for another 24 hours, Dr. Smith. Is that understood? a little unreasonable this is no concern of yours maureen i can't think of a better episode to showcase guy williams talent as an actor and also to display the character of professor robinson so this is a no-brainer for me yeah that one's easy there's no competition there that's the the best episode for john and it's one of the best episodes of the series so he just wins that one hands down Now, Maureen, I think you kind of made reference to this last time as well. She really doesn't have an episode where it's, you know, all about Maureen. She's got some great moments, but the one that kind of jumped to my mind when I was thinking about it was the confrontation that she had with Dr. Smith in One of Our Dogs is Missing when Smith has disassembled all the... (laughs) all their weapons and can't figure out how to put them back together and she is just absolutely fit to be tied our gun rack is empty all our weapons are gone i'm glad i had mine with me calm yourself madam i have the situation well in hand oh hang the situation i want to know where our guns are right here in front of your eyes what this is our arsenal The first duty of a good soldier is to take care of his weapons. I found our guns badly in need of cleaning. Naturally, I took appropriate action. Can you put these together again? What exactly do you take me for, madam? Some fumble-fingered recruit? Frankly, yes. I'm deeply wounded. For your information, I have the matter completely under control. Well, then, put them together. All in good time. I may require your assistance. I don't know anything about assembling weapons. Naturally. May I borrow your gun for a moment? I've never seen her more exasperated. So I thought that was a pretty good moment for her character and for June. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a great moment. But I will uh, respectfully disagree as far as it being the best moment, because the best moment for me was her shrinking violet scene with Kanto. Uh, mm. when John is possessed at the dinner table. I always love that scene where John is dressing her down in front of everybody. It's out of character for him. Everybody else is, you know, kind of squirming. It's uncomfortable to watch. But, you know, so are car crashes where we all slow down and stare at it while we're driving. You know, it's it's our unconscious attempt to spot the bloody gore. And in this instance, we just like to see this almost fight break out because they've been so perfect together Mm. all this time and you know for the rest of us who have regular (laughs) marriages it's fun to see a little fight break out between you know the otherwise perfect couple because i want it that way lisa uh, marine (laughs) (laughs) anybody else have any questions yeah when do we start that's better Uh, yeah you're making some strong cases here sir great Well, Don, Major West, hmm, I thought this was pretty easy for me to pick out. Now, maybe maybe you'll disagree with me here, too, but I just really loved that interchange that he had with Granddaddy Zach in A Change of Space, where he's trying to 
feet. Here's some nice warm, warm soup, Doctor Smith. And I and love the way they set him up for that. Take you go do it, Don. You go. Do- yeah, yeah, Don. You go do it. <laughs> Me? Exactly. Yeah. You knew it was coming, but it was just really fun to watch that whole thing. And you made a good point in that. You know, he's actually showing compassion to Doctor Smith after all these things. I mean, he's not a member of the Doctor Smith fan club, and yet when push comes to shove, he's showing a little compassion. So I thought that was interesting to see out of Don's character. Yeah, he's kind of showing you that he's an unusual type of bully. So when Doctor Smith is completely disarmed and weak. At that point, it's no longer fun for him anymore to bully him. <laughs> so at that point, he's compassionate to him. But you're still a kinder guy for me because I like Don when he's had his most vindictive and he's being ruthless towards Smith, you know? And one of my favorite scenes is when Smith is looking for the diamond cutting tools and Doc comes up behind him. And, you know, what are you looking for? Oh, damn, yeah. And Smith bumps his head and, you know, that whole scene, everything's going Oh, yeah, going from Magic Mirror. Oh, no, says- was that Magic Mirror? I thought it was Mr. Nobody. No, it was Magic Mirror because he was using the diamond tools to go peel off some platinum from the oh, okay, okay. Uh, from the mirror frame. And then Don, I love that scene, too, because Don says, oh, I, I understand, Dr. Smith, your back's hurting, but I've got a nice restorative cure for you. <laughs> a shovel. <laughs> uh, classic. Yeah, that's oh, great. Well, Judy, Judy, little sweet, vivacious Judy. The moment that I will always remember from season one for Judy was that moment when she was confronting the family as her vegetable alter ego in Attack of the Monster Plants. And maybe I'm really talking about Marta Kristen, because Marta Kristen doesn't get too many opportunities to stretch her acting legs either. But I thought she did a particularly good job at that. So maybe it's not really a Judy moment so much as a Marta Kristen moment. All right, let's have it. I'm sure you are aware, as Dr. Smith is, that we... The plants are capable of reproducing an image of anything. I am simply such an image. What about our Judy? Quite safe and completely unaware of what's taken place. Will you give her back? No. But I thought that was a really creepy scene, a la Invasion of the Body Snatchers, that whole vibe. Mm -hmm. So that one really stuck out in my mind. Oh, yeah. Well, that again, there's no competition. That wins stems down. But I'll always regret how they cut out the scene where, you know, she's withering away or mm. fading. It would have been so much better if it had been like that last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where they had, you know, a, a wax figure of them and they <laughs> melt her, you know, in fast motion. And, yeah. Uh. That was a shame that they cut that one out. And to not address it at all was just like so <laughs> lame, but still, you know, very typical loss in space. It's mm-hmm. sort of like, okay, well, well, they cut it out. So it wasn't Irwin's idea. I'll grant him that. So when it's the, the big cheese at CBS, you have to do what they tell you to do. Exactly. Well, Penny, little Penny Robinson. Okay, she's got some great scenes in season one. But it's hard not to pick her, well, really her entire performance in My Friend, Mr. Nobody. I thought it was outstanding. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it has to either be that or Magic Mirror. And I'm going to favor Magic Mirror simply because it was more nightmarish. I like the echoing mirror world better than the echoing cave world. And, uh, you know, it just seemed more mystic and uh, mysterious. So, mm-hmm. Who are you? Who do you want me to be? Don't you have a name? <laughs> uh, what name would you like? 
Would you please stop answering every question with a question and tell me how to get out of this cave? Cave? What, what cave? This has to be a cave with an entrance of some sort down by that funny old mirror. This isn't a cave. This is a whole world, that's what it is. Well, then I'll just have to find my own way out. There's no way out, Penny. No way at all. How'd you know my name? Oh, I know everybody's name. Especially those I choose to look through the other side of mirror. You've watched me? Of course. Love, 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 love. Love. I couldn't stand the co-star, but I, I liked everything else about that. That final scene that she had with her mother in her cabin, that was very touching as well. Yes, yeah. and I liked the way it was so subtle. Exactly, with the little ringing bell, and you just, mm-hmm. you sort of thought... They didn't even turn it up, you know? Exactly, but they did something I thought they couldn't do, and they made me actually feel sorry for Michael J. Pollard, yeah. you know, at that point. That's true. Mm-hmm. Well... Now we're coming to Will Robinson. Okay. Gosh, he's got a lot of good moments to remember, but I think one of the ones that sticks out to me is that scene in The Lost Civilization when the evil Major Domo tells Will that he's got to marry the little princess, and he gives that, me? Marry her? No way. (laughs) That was very convincing. And the line that he gives about it is like, I don't even have a job, you know? (laughs) And and he's delivering that line. You can tell he's running out of oxygen at that point because he's given (laughs) this long litany of reasons he's not going to marry it, but he's going to get that one in too, you know? (laughs) It's very funny. Oh, that's a great one, yeah. But I would disagree because overall, I mean, I love that episode. The the only thing is that the first half of that episode is kind of slow. But by the time they get down into the, you know, the underworld, things are really exciting for me because it's so different. And and I love that. But I just thought as far as Will showcasing his talent, really, I mean, it can't compete with a return from outer space. The Robinsons are my own family. And they can't come and get me, even if they knew where I was. The Jupiter 2 crashed onto a hillside, and that's where it is now. And it can't get out unless a rescue ship reaches them. That's why I'm here. Yeah, well, then how'd you get here? By the matter transfer unit that the Torrens left on the planet. Well, I thought they'd taken it back with them. But the other morning, I was looking for some radioactive minerals, and... You were looking for what? Some radioactive minerals for a propulsion unit. Well, that's when I found the matter transfer unit. And the robot helped me to get it working, and that's how I got here on a maser beam. But that's not important. I've got to reach out for control. That's very important. Uh, Will, dear, let's take a drive over to the sheriff's office. I'm sure he can help you reach your family. I can't reach my family from Earth. I want to reach out for control. Well, he'll help you do that, too. Much easier than I can. Uh, he carries that entire episode of Return from Outer Space. It's basically all about him, and uh, uh, it's a great episode, too. So I'd, I'd have to pass that off to his best performance being Return from Outer Space. Yeah, yeah, sir. Well, let's give an award to the robot. I think this one's pretty obvious, too, and that would be War of the Robots. think that was a standout episode for the robot himself and i think we saw a big change in not only the robot's character but also his position within the family so that's a great episode and that's a great moment for good old b9 affirmative that choice does compute 
and nothing can come close to it. And I mean, if, if you have any doubts, he literally saves the whole family at the end of this battle scene. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's his. Well, sometimes you save the best for last, so we've come to Dr. Smith, the last of our regular characters. We've touched on this before, and I guess I'm not going to go different here. I would say that my favorite moment for him was His Majesty Smith, because I just felt like he was finally in his element. He had been named king, and he was getting to greet his friends in regal splendor, and he just seemed to be eating up the scenery throughout that episode. So I thought that was a great traditional Dr. Smith episode, as we came to know it. Because I guess maybe there's three different Dr. Smiths, if you think about it. You know, there's the homicidal Dr. Smith we see at the first five episodes. And then there's this Dr. Smith is what I'm thinking of here. And then you could kind of say that new Smith that emerged at the end of All That Glitters. But he only makes a cameo appearance, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm picking His Majesty Smith as my standout Dr. Smith episode. Yeah, well, it's a great episode for the reasons we talked about. But as far as Jonathan Harris's performance, I'm going to give that award to an evil twin to that episode, which would be the evil Dr. Smith performance in The Sky is Falling. I just can't believe it. I could tell we liked each other. An alien race will. Their emotional responses could be the direct opposite of our own. A laugh could mean deep hatred, while a frown could be the friendliest of expressions. Dr. Smith? I don't want you to go near that campsite again. I don't know what that would have Now they obviously know where we are. And when they want to contact us, they will. In the meantime, there's every chance that we can live in peace with them. Provided we don't spoil it by acting prematurely. You're making a mistake. We are dealing with a hostile, aggressive people. We must act immediately. Force is all they understand. Smith, have you ever in your life had a good thought? I am a realistic man, Major. Only a fool closes his eyes to the truth. But let's examine the situation, shall we? You think our visitors are friendly? All right. Suppose they are. But how long do you think that will last? On the one hand, tens of thousands of aliens, and on the other hand, ourselves. Eventually, we will become the curiosities. Outlandish creatures to be pointed out and stared at. Freaks, animals. That's what we will appear to be to them. And then what do you think will happen? They'll put us into cages. Hurry, 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 see the strange creatures. Watch them eat, drink, sleep. Only a quarter, folks. Oh, Dr. Smith, please do sit down and have some dinner. There, it's interesting because not only is he evil, but he's actually making good points. I mean, he he's not even really being evil. He's evil in the way that he's manipulating them. But his logic is not flawed because, I mean, these are aliens and they could be a threat. And, you know, I loved watching his negotiations, the way he tries to uh, uh, negotiate with the, the newcomers. Which was also interesting because originally, you know, he's sounding the alarm and then the next move, it's like, okay, well, if I can't beat him, I'll try to join them. (laughs) And then, well, if I can't join him, then I'll go back to trying to beat them. Watching Smith try to betray someone is always a, a wonderful scene. Yes. I do love that bit in this one where he says, two more little problems seem to have arrived. It's positively raining aliens. Next, I'd like to nominate my pick for Best Screenwriter of Season 1 Lost in Space. And my answer might surprise you because most of the episodes I've highlighted so far were written by Peter Packer, the series' most prolific writer. 
But actually, I'm going to nominate the second most prolific writer, Barney Slater. Eventually, he would get 22 scripts produced for Lost in Space. And the reason why I'm nominating him versus Packer is because I really feel his stories captured the essence of Lost in Space. The adventure, the frights, the fantasy, and most importantly, the family theme. Just listen to the episodes that he wrote for season one. The Sky is Falling, Wish Upon a Star, The Keeper Parts 1 and 2, War of the Robots, The Challenge, The Space Trader, All That Glitters, and Follow the Leader. And you know what, Kurt? I can't think of a bad episode in the bunch. Yeah, there may be some better scripts out there, but no one cranked out as many good ones as Barney did, so he does deserve that reward. Exactly, exactly. Now, for my category of favorite director, I'm going to go with Sutton Raleigh. To me, he had the most cinematic approach with the least resources and often not the greatest scripts, but I enjoyed his camera angles, use of lighting. I thought he got good performances from the cast. The episodes that he directed for season one were One of Our Dogs is Missing, Wish Upon a Star, and The Oasis. And of the three, Wish Upon a Star was probably his best work. Well, I, I just, going off the look of, you know, the basic feel of an episode, and that would have to go to Don Richardson for Ghost in Space. Ooh. Because there was so much of a universal monster vibe to the shots throughout that entire episode, and the bit with the Ouija board was priceless. I just I thought it was all very well done, so. Yes, good old Don Richardson. He rises to the occasion, you know, so if you give him something that he can really chew on and he'll deliver. Indeed, sir. Well, next, let's talk about special effects. You know, this is, after all, a a science fiction adventure series. And my favorite special effects shot has already been mentioned, and that was the scene with the derelict in Episode 2, where the Jupiter 2 gets swallowed up by that derelict. I'll never be able to forget that scene. There was just something so unbelievable about that. You know, it's sort of been aped in other science fiction. I particularly remember the beginning of Star Wars when the little small rebel ship is pulled up inside this big giant star destroyer in the little bay. But, you know, that was 10 years after Lost in Space and, of course, with a much bigger budget. But I thought that derelict shot was great. Yeah, that was a wonderful scene. And the foreboding it it establishes for the whole rest of the episode is wonderful. And it gave the first hint that this was an organic ship as opposed to one that looked as mechanical as it did on the outside, the way it was behaving. So, yeah, that was delightful. But as far as my favorite one, and it's interesting because it shares something similar with what you just described. It's the scene from There Were Giants in the Earth where they're going past the dead Cyclops. Ooh, yeah. I just love that. And do you know what the commonality between those two shots is? You know, it's not a shot that's hammering you, hey, big special effects shot coming up here, because you're just inside the chariot, you know, watching from inside as you're passing by this Cyclops, but it gives you that sense of scale. Exactly, that right there, and you know, that's kind of like the first hint that Erwin Allen is going to go do this Land of the Giants, because he's really figured out 
if you make us small compared to other animals, it doesn't matter what they are. They're dangerous to you. And that's the biggest thing with the Cyclops. They're so huge. And when you go driving by and you see that head and it's bigger than the chariot, you're just thinking, wow. Exactly. And you just put your finger on something, Kurt, that I think is pretty interesting. You know, the size matters, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess, is, a, is the way to put it. And it made me think, you know, one of the creepiest parts in that whole sequence is... I don't know if you recall this or not, but there's a moment when Debbie is inside of the chariot and she starts sort of banging on the glass Mm -hmm. and you can see the the Cyclops behind it. And it sort of makes me think, you know, to Debbie, the humans are giants, (laughs) giants. Mm -hmm. And now to the Robinsons. Oh, guess what? Maybe they're no longer at the top of the food chain on this planet. That's kind of scary. Uh-huh. Well, you know, you talk about this planet. Now, I've said this numerous times throughout these uh, various episodes. We keep seeing these spider webs. We never see the spiders. I keep wanting to see the spiders. Anything that can make those largest spider webs is going to be a great special effect. And, of course, since Irwin's robbing from the Fox prop department, there's a lot of big spiders to choose from. So I just had this thought today. What if in the second season we discover that the spiders, they're invisible, and that's why we don't see them? I mean, that would be really scary. Big spiders are scary to begin with, but invisible spiders. Now, I'm not saying that they can't turn visible, because, you know, you'd love to actually see them. But if you were a spider and you can make yourself invisible, (laughs) and you were big, wow. Yeah, that's a great idea, though. Invisible spiders. <laughs> Big giant ones. Material. Oh my god! Just before they attack. <laughs> Well, speaking of creepy things, let's talk about sound effects. I think we've both lauded the sound guy for this show. I mean, he has made, just like the music, the sound effects have really saved a lot of otherwise eh, so-so monsters and made things appear a lot scarier or more futuristic or whatever than they might otherwise have been. So the sound effects guy really deserves a lot of kudos. So, gosh, there's a lot of competition for this. But my favorite sound effect, I think, is that frog pond sound that they used for the monster plants. And I've got two reasons that I really liked that frog pond sound effect. One was the fact that, hey, it's a frog pond and it's just a cool sound in general. But number two, it's the whole idea of plants making sounds. I mean, I've never heard of a plant that sings or barks or or screams or whatever it is they're doing. Well, now, wait a minute. Every tree has barks. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, there is a sound that, that plants make. If you've ever been, you know, down in the Caribbean and everything, or even down in South Florida, there's what they call a palm chatter or wind chatter, and that's from palm trees. Mm. They make a delightful sound as the palms are, are blowing in the wind and very, very relaxing. That and the sound of the surf are two of my favorite oceanside sounds. Oh, I hadn't considered that, yeah. I certainly prefer them to the other oceanside sound, which is the... Uh, humming of the mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> yep, don't like that. Yeah, as far as the sound effects for the episodes, I do agree with you that, that is my favorite sound effect, but not from that episode. I like the original 
debut of that sound effect from Hello Stranger, which is pretty much the same sound effect. That's true. Where the, the viruses. What I loved about it was it took what would have otherwise been a kind of ridiculous scene and it made it infinitely more frightening having that sound effect because when the viruses appear, they create all this the sound effect of the, the swamp sound. Yeah. And the alien spores. Yeah. They can grow to huge size. No, that's true. You got me there. That was the first time we heard that. It's great. All right, now here's a category, Kurt, that's going to be near and dear to your heart, and that is your favorite monster from season one of Lost in Space. I'm going to go with the cave monster from The Challenge. But again, this one had a great sound effect associated with it. And we don't get to see this monster a lot. I think he just basically makes two or three appearances during the episode. And he's not really the focus of the episode like some of the others in the series. But for whatever reason, that recycled mask with the fly and I think he was wearing the bodysuit from Ghost in Space. And maybe it was just the sound effect and the fact that he was up in that cave looming up above. I just thought that was a very, very creepy and excellent monster. Yep. And I do think that sound made that one of the best monsters that they had. Without that sound, it would have just been sort of silly. But with that sound, oh boy. Because, you know, I think that there's also something subconsciously we associate rattlesnakes with caves. Mm. And when Mm -hmm. there was something that sounded very much like a rattlesnake, even though it wasn't quite the same, but it definitely channeled that vibe. And so it seemed natural, and yet it also seemed, you know, terrifying because this is even potentially worse than a, a rattlesnake, which is hard to imagine something worse than a rattlesnake. But a, a giant monster in a cave that makes the sound of a rattlesnake, yeah, that would qualify. <laughs> well, I'll tell you my least favorite monster that we've seen in season one. Would you like to hear that? Sure. You're going to disagree with me, but I would put that on the eye stock monster from Magic Mirror. It was weird. It was different. But I think maybe I was just suffering from bear suit fatigue by that point. Or maybe it was that whole Furby story you told during that episode. I can't remember. (laughs) Something tainted me about that. (laughs) Well, you you really thought that that monster was less stupid than the mutant monster and one of our dogs is missing? Ridiculous. No, the mutant was scarier to me because of his performance. You know, the fact he was actually attacking and he was creeping. There was a one scene Coming out of the sand, yeah. Yeah. The eye stock monster... I just, you know, he just didn't seem all that threatening to me, I guess, is what I'm coming Well, I mean, to. you've got a point. He's been in that world with that Pollard guy for all eternity, and he's never managed to capture him. How could you not capture a human if you're locked in with him for all eternity? <laughs> right, know? right. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of the vibe I was getting off of him. I feel like he was really sort of a toothless tiger, I suppose. But, well, interestingly uh, enough, I think some of my favorite monsters are the ones who had the worst parts. They didn't really perform well as monsters, but they look cool. And that would probably go to the ghost in space monster. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought he looked really cool. And there's another monster, my all-time favorite one, and I haven't even seen this episode. I just saw it on Google, and I thought, wow, I can't wait to see that episode. But I'm hearing that may not be one of the best episodes. But it's Visit to Hades, where they uh, did a mashup on the monster from uh, this island Earth. And it mm-hmm. uh, looks a lot like the monster from Mars Attacks, the trading card series. So, mm-hmm. But that, again, he's just like a walk-on role. He doesn't really have any you know, great performance. 
But uh, hey, I love a monster when it looks cool. And also uh, the change of space monster. I thought that looked really cool. Yeah, the fish man. Yes, yeah. He, he doesn't. He doesn't act scary. I mean, but as far as a picture is concerned, if you don't know what the plot is, and you just see that, I'd say, hey, he's right up there with the creature of the Black Lagoon. I, I'd vote for that guy. I thought you were going to pick the Reberoid from Wish Upon a Star. No, he doesn't. He's a scary character, but he just doesn't. He's just a little just too uh, bland for me. You know, there's not okay. a whole lot of features to him. I like his eyes. Yeah. But uh, he's just kind of a little bit more elaborate than a mummy. And I do like mummy characters. But, you know, when you look at the other creations of Universal Monsters, that's like the easiest. That's right up there with the vampire. You know, I'll put mm. on the fangs and put a little bit of blood on the corner of my lips. Voila, vampire. Ooh. I'm going to wrap myself up with bandages. <laughs> oh, okay. Great Halloween costume. Applause. You know, just doesn't do it. So the, the Mr. Blackwell of Monster Reviews <laughs> says thumbs down on the rubberoid. Claws down. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Let's talk about guest stars. This series had a lot of interesting guest stars for the first season. So my pick is Torin Thatcher, the space trader. Yes, I, I wish I could help you. I realize the difficulty, but is there nothing that you can offer in exchange? All I have is what you see before you, Mr. Trader. You mean... Oh, no. I mean, what would the Traders Association say if they ever heard? What is it? Surely you can work something out. But weren't you suggesting that you should trade yourself? Myself? Good heavens! You must be joking. Now, don't worry. Don't get excited, Dr. Smith. Of course I didn't mean that you should trade yourself right away. I mean, not swap yourself immediately. Good heavens, or sometime in the future, say... 200 years from now. 200 years? <sighs> well, now. I thought he was so great. It was like you said, it was like dueling Dr. Smith's when he and Jonathan Harris were together. I thought he was perfectly cast. Mm -hmm. I loved his voice. I loved his mannerisms. But I dearly wish he had come back in season two. I think he was a great character and a great performance by Torrin Thatcher. So. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a lot of honorable mentions, though. I mean, Michael Rennie, how great was he as the keeper? Michael and Sarah, the ruler from the challenge, I thought he was great. And Albert Salmi as Tucker the pirate, I thought his performance was good, and I liked that character in that episode. And as I said before, he does come back in season two, so we have that to look forward to. Yeah, well, those are all great selections, but you're revealing your 1960s bias against characters of color. Mm. In fact, some people have complained that Lost in Space never had any black characters at all, and therefore was a racist program. But they're only demonstrating their own racist ignorance when they say that because it proves they favor the human race over all other races. Oh. And you would hope that in the new millennium we could get past that bias. Lost in Space not only featured a black guest star, they gave him one of the best and juiciest roles in one of the best and juiciest episodes, even if it was a villain. My favorite pick goes to that guest star appearance of the first black star in Lost in Space, the infamous and unforgettable Robbie the Robot. Nothing can stop me. I am very strong. I can stop you. I am armed not only with superior mental powers, 
but superior weapons as well. You will be stopped. I can destroy you easily, foolish, sad machine. There can be no fight between us. It would not be a contest. You need a small demonstration of my powers. A small reminder of what is in store for you if I am provoked. The only thing they could have done to make it perhaps even better would have been to use the voice of James Earl Jones. I love that character. Oh, and for the record, my other favorite Lost in Space character was also African-American actor named Lamar Lundy. And he, of course, played the Cyclops. That's true. That's true. Interesting. Hmm. I had never considered that the Robotoid was, you know, a character of color, but you make a good point. He was a shiny black <laughs> robot, and he was a good character. It's kind of interesting to think of him that way. Though. Well, not to think of him that way would be like not to consider Data uh, one of the cast members of, of Star Trek. He is a cast member. Just because he's a robotoid yes. or a uh, some cyborg doesn't change the fact that he's a major character. Mm. And I'm kind of sorry that he got destroyed in the end. I would like to see him come back. Yes. Oh, well, we, we will get to see him come back, but as a different character, I guess. Yes. Okay. Well, I've, I have to widen my <laughs> aperture, I guess, a little bit and think less human-centric and more inclusive, Kurt. I've been properly schooled now. Yeah, you've been woke. I've been woke. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I've already telegraphed this, and I think I made it pretty clear. My least favorite character, my least favorite guest star was Michael J. Pollard, the lost boy in The Magic Mirror. I just never warmed to him. But like I said, they managed to make me feel sorry for him in that last scene when you realize he's stuck there. Yeah, well, you took the bad breath right out of my mouth. He's the character I love to hate. But, Michael, if you're out there listening, Mm. you know, that does take talent to do that. It's because you're so different and you're so unique. Wow. So nothing personal, Michael. No, nothing personal. And we always have to think just what would have happened if Gilligan, a.k.a. Bob Denver, hadn't flunked out of the army and come back to Dobie Gillis. Yes. (laughs) And and now remind me how they did that. Did they announce that he was like the cousin of Dobie Gillis? Yes, he was the wacky cousin of, or not, it was Maynard. Maynard, uh, okay. And when Maynard came back, did they give a reason for it or did they just like pretend it never happened? Oh, oh no, oh no. He just, Maynard was back. Oh, okay, uh, I hate when they do that. My gosh. Bewitched and the Darrens, the two Darrens. Dudes, you're in this magical world. Make it part of the plot. Yeah. Well, at least they didn't say it was the same guy. They did change the character, but they just wrote him out instantly. Yeah. When well, we can thank him for that. And, of course, the, the black uh, radio operator in Hogan's Heroes, he's another classic <laughs> example. He just changes out. They just change the name. It's like, no acknowledgement. I mean, if the Nazis took him out and shot him because he's African-American, we should hear about it. I know it's a comedy, but it's still part of the story. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. All right, let's move on to lost in space technology that we love. And there's a lot of competition for this. There's the freezing tubes, the force field projector, the chariot. One of my favorite was that electronic laundry machine. Yeah, so many to choose from. But I'm going to go with one that's already been mentioned, and that is the Toron MTU, the matter transfer unit. 
It's awesome. But I just like the fact that they were doing this whole beaming stuff and they beat Star Trek to the punch, if you will, mm-hmm. you know. Gene Roddenberry said they invented the transporter basically to save costs because they didn't want to have to show the Enterprise landing or a shuttlecraft landing on a planet every time they got off the ship. So the the transporter was the perfect way to do it. But in this case, the matter transfer machine is actually sort of critical to the whole story. Yeah. I thought that was and Gene, cool. And let's face it, Gene lied about that. You can't tell me that he wasn't watching Lost in Space while he was doing this. It was going to be his number one competition. He had to know that. So there was only two possible explanations. He saw it and he went, crap, you know, I was going to use that. Or he said, oh, wow, this could solve our problem about, you know, not having to use the shuttle in every episode. The third option, which is that he just didn't see it, that's just not acceptable. I don't buy that. And plus, even if that were true, he had to have seen it in Flash Gordon because Flash Gordon was the 1930s and they had a matter transfer machine in that series. Ah, Yes. But, you know, he wouldn't be the first guy to try to get more credit than he deserves, in Hollywood especially. Mm. <laughs> but as far as my favorite technology, yes, I love the freeze tubes. Yes, I like the matter transfer machine. And, of course, I love the force field. But there was one thing I liked even better. I wouldn't have been able to tell you this until our last episode. And that was the... <laughs> Spirit transfer fog from Follow the Leader. Oh. That's technology. Whether you, you know, it seems supernatural, but it was a technology. He somehow managed to transfer. What were you, what do you think I was going to say? Because you had this big smile on your face. I was afraid you were going to talk about the coiled cutlass again. So please, I'm, no. I'm relieved that you're talking about the fog. <laughs> the giant IUD. No, it wasn't that. <laughs> no, this was a, uh, uh, but you know, there's another one too. My, my other favorite one is the same sort of thing. And that was the clone making sequence from His Majesty's Smith. Oh, yeah. I thought that was delightful, too. That was. That was really cool. Yeah. And, of course, I got to give an honorable mention to the infinite hallway of uh, Army and Lost Civilization. I love that, where they have the two people facing each other in front of the mirrors, and the way that that looks like an endless hall is beautiful. So you can call that stage technology. Oh, yeah, or special effects. But that was so brilliantly done, and I just love the explanation. It's so cool to see how they did something that you thought was done a lot more complicated, but it was really just smoke and mirrors, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, literally. I mean, the first one was smoke. That was the uh, bit with the fog, and the last one was mirrors. So smoke and mirrors. There you go. Well, alien spaceships. We've had a few alien spaceships, and we've already talked about the derelict. I think that one's got to be right up there. But my favorite alien spaceship from season one has got to be that weird psychedelic invaders from the fifth dimension ship. I've never seen another spaceship, alien or otherwise, anything like it. Mm -hmm. It was so strange because it was asymmetrical. It had that big giant sphere cradled in that weird, almost driftwood-looking platform, whatever you want to call it. This is really, really different. And you're calling that a a giant sphere. And why that was cool is because the alien would appear in the middle of it like it's inside the pupil. And it looked like a giant eyeball. Right. Like an eyeball. Exactly. 
The keeper ship was also very cool. So I don't know if you agree with me or you have another contender. Maybe the uh, Andronican cave ship or whatever. Well, what I liked, my favorite one was the, because of what it hints at, and they didn't hit you over the head with this, but it was that organic skeleton remains of the ship in Wish Upon a Star. It made me wonder, what kind of ship was this? Was it even a ship or was it an organism that had been grown into a ship? I mean, that definitely looked like a skeleton. I, I think they were trying to make it look like a mechanical skeleton but it looked more like an organic skeleton to me. It looked like a whale carcass is what it looked like. Exactly, it did. Those ribs. Mm-hmm. Oh no, that's a great one. Yeah, I like that one a lot. Well, moving along in this very short podcast. Uh, yeah, the podcast, <laughs> the Never Ending Story podcast. Uh, I think we would be remiss also, Kurt, not to mention the music from this first season is just fantastic. The John Williams pieces, the Herman Stein pieces, they both did a magnificent job. My favorite of all of the cues from season one, though, would have to be what's called on the soundtrack collection, Strangled. Because it's first used in island in the sky when Don grabs Dr. Smith, but that cue would be used again and again and again. I call it the horrible monster or the gasp cue, because anytime a, a strange alien shows up or there's something horrific like the, the ghost in space <laughs> alien, they yeah. play that. There's something about that music. It just grabs you and it doesn't let go. It really does. It's just fantastic. They should call that the strangle cue. I mean, it's so... <laughs> <laughs> Hello. (laughs) Am I coming through? Yes, it is absolute great. But there's a lot of great things. And I love the fact in season one, they actually have themes for so many things. They have a family theme. They have a Dr. Smith theme. They have a chariot theme, a jetpack, a danger theme. It's that da-da-da. What, what's the one that goes na na dun 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 na na dun 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 na na dun Builds up. What's that one called? You yes. Know? Well, it's the scene basically in in Reluctant Stowaway when the ship is about to take off. Okay. It's called Final Countdown. Final Countdown is the name. That's of That's a beautiful sound. They use it over and over again. You know, it's one of those things that you never hum, but when you hear it, it's like, uh-oh, you know, something's building up. It's not necessarily scary. It's suspenseful. There's tension and there's buildup. It's remarkable how they do that sometimes. Yep. Can't argue with you. That's uh, that's great. Moving right along. Yes, moving right along. Let's talk about the results of our online 
Season 1 episode survey. So I put up on our Facebook page, I posted this in a couple of other, actually not a couple, quite a few Lost in Space Facebook groups and pages. I put it out there on Twitter. I even got some unsolicited emails and direct messages from people. What's your favorite episode of Season 1 of Lost in Space? And you could only vote once and only for one. Don't give me your top three or anything. But we got some pretty good feedback on this. I think we got about 70 votes. And coming in in third place, we actually had a three-way tie. My friend, Mr. Nobody, Return from Outer Space, and Wish Upon a Star all tied. They each got eight votes. We've mentioned all three of those, so that's not too surprising. Coming in at number two with 10 votes was Island in the Sky. Wow. But coming in at the number one spot was Follow the Leader. That got 12 votes. So, Although, uh, to be fair, a lot of that's probably because it was the one that was most recently you know, discussed. So it, it's foremost in your mind. It could be. Honorable mentions here. There were quite a few. Fourth would have been the reluctant stowaway. There were giants in the earth and invaders from the fifth dimension and the keeper part one. All of those got votes as well. So thanks to all our loyal listeners who participated in the survey. I really appreciate that and hope to do some more of that in the future. Thanks a bunch. That was pretty nice. You're right. What's freshest in your mind is probably what's most on your mind. So, Well, I talked about my favorite seven, and I, I really couldn't pick a number one, and I couldn't even pick a number two. I mean, I basically wound up with seven that were, I thought, just top-notch, and I couldn't really justify one being better than the other. So I'll just blurt those out. You could even say it's top eight because one of them was the keeper, and that's a two-parter. Okay. And I just I can't say that one half of it was better than the other. I just enjoyed that episode a lot. Uh, the Derelict was one of the top best ones. There were Giants in the Earth, Invaders from the Fifth Dimension, Return from Outer Space, the Keepers I already mentioned, War of the Robots, and Follow the Leader. And it just seemed to me that what I really liked about all those episodes is they were so solid from start to finish. There were other episodes that I really liked a lot that had some slow parts in it. But these uh, seven episodes, there's just no skim parts for me. They were great from start to finish. Like the Monster Plants one's a great example. I really like that episode, but there are some parts that I would skim through. But uh, these other ones, no, they're solid from start to finish. All right. So let me ask you this question. If you had to pick one episode from season one of Lost in Space to show to someone who'd never seen the series before, had no idea what it was about, which one episode would you choose? Hmm. Well... You know, the problem with that one is a lot of the episodes I'd want to tell them that are favorites are so unique that it would be a little bit uh, like a false leader. That's what uh, I'm saying, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, so so for something like uh, The Derelict, I mean, I would want them to see The Derelict, but it's so unique. They're not going to see that episode again, and they might think like, well, wait a minute. I thought this series was going to be like that. This is completely different. Or even The Keeper, that's a two-parter. So if you show them that one, it's like, wait a minute. There are no other two-parters. I thought I was going to get longer episodes like that. But for one that kind of follows the formula, the standard formula that they use, but just does a really, really good job of it, that would be The Invaders from the Fifth Dimension. You lament your forebearers. My what? Father, mother, you miss them. What do you think? We can, if you wish, erase your memory circuits. Then you will cease to feel the pain of separation. No! I want to remember them. Very well. We shall depart as soon as your cerebral circuits have been fully tested. I don't care about your old computer. I'm not going to think of anything for you unless I can go back with my folks. Regrettably, 
for a period of time, we will need you more than they. It's got Smith being his conniving self. It's got a great monster, very solid writing. And uh, I just, you know, I love the way that that whole thing goes from start to finish. That's a great contender, and I think I would agree with that one. But the other one that I thought of would have been episode 20, War of the Robots. Oh, yeah. That's a Barney Slater episode. Soby Martin, this is probably his best effort from season one. And I don't think you're going to fool people with this one. I mean, because basically it follows the formula. There's an alien that comes to visit. There's a dilemma created by the alien's presence. And now it's up to the castaways to figure it out. But... Much like Invaders from the Fifth Dimension captures a lot of the best elements. It's got the action-packed ending. It's got some funny, humorous scenes between Smith and the robot. I do not require any assistance, but your presence is welcome. I hope you're listening to this, you broken-down has-been. Shall we go to work, sir? Sure thing. Let's get with it. Can I help anyone? I can't think of anything at the moment, but maybe Dad has something you can do. No, not at the moment. I'm going to check the weather station. You want to come along? The robot can do it for you. No, I'm afraid that job is much too complex for him. I guess you're right. But don't worry. There'll be plenty of things you can do. Plenty of. Come on along, sir. Do you need any help, Dr. Smith? There are many things which need to be done. But unfortunately, you are incapable of doing any of them. No one requires my services anymore. An astute observation. You, sir, have reached the end of the line. The joyride is over. I had planned to redesign you possibly into a pleasure vehicle, but I think you would be substandard even as that. What is my course of action? A quick departure seems a very good choice. Are you sure there is no other solution? None whatsoever. Goodbye. Then I will go. Say goodbye to the others for me. I will. Goodbye. Especially Will. Yes, yes, yes. Goodbye. Farewell, Dr. Smith. I detest drawn-out departures. Go and get it over with. Yes, get it over with. Yes. And it's overall got that family feeling. So I thought that was a great episode, and I think it would be representative of what the series is trying to do at its best. Okay, you're not just picking this now because you're trying to backpedal because you were discriminated against characters of color earlier, are you? <laughs> no, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another thing I like about this episode is how they're playing for keeps. And the best part about it is that the Robinsons are never really aware of this. But if they don't get out of this predicament, they're going to be used for experiments. Right. You know, they never tell them that. We just know that because we saw the conversation between the alien and this robot. So uh, that's pretty spooky when you stop and think about it. They never really realized how much danger they really were in. Yeah, the closest is that line that the robotoid says, there are others who may have use of you or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But it's not explicit. It's just sort mm-hmm. of a veiled threat. So they really don't know how much trouble. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have great need for new subjects for our experiments. <laughs> yes. You know, you tell someone you're going to be uh, turned into a slave. That's a big bummer. But if you tell them, well, we're going to use you for our experiments and our slaves, it doesn't get any worse than that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it sure doesn't. Oh. That's great. Well, both of those are good. I think anybody who saw either of those episodes and they liked them would like season one of Lost in Space overall. So that's great. Well, 
before we finish up talking about season one, one little issue I wanted to bring up, it's been widely discussed, but some late breaking news that's happened in the last couple of months is Kevin Burns released the colorized unaired pilot, No Place to Hide on the new Netflix Lost in Space Blu-ray set. And it's reignited the whole discussion about colorizing all these black and white episodes. We've said a couple times how great black and white worked for some of the specific episodes, but I don't think I've ever asked you directly, Kurt, what's your take on the whole issue of colorizing season one Lost in Space? No, you didn't ask me, but like in so many other instances, I just blurted it out anyway. Uh, I told you the very first episode that I was against colorization. Uh, But, you know, I've given it a lot more reflection, and I've actually changed my mind about it. I do prefer it myself, and I still would like to have the black and white episodes available on any DVD collection I have, because that's the way I like to watch it. But I'm no longer against colorization for everyone else, because I realize it's a handicap, a big handicap, preventing more people from enjoying the show, since stations just routinely discriminate against the airing of the first and best season of Lost in Space. So being a purist about it is like saying, I don't care if it hurts sales or not. I don't think they should ever dub any of the Lost in Space episodes into foreign languages because that's not the way it was originally made and it would be replacing the interpretation, the acting interpretation of the original actors. They Mm. should only use captions. Now, see, that's a totally valid point, but nobody ever makes it. No. They just accept the fact that, of course, they're going to dub it because otherwise you're going to limit your audience so much. You're going to ruin the chances that anybody outside the English-speaking countries are going to want to watch Lost in Space. So if that's the case, yeah, we should be able to bend on something and whether they colorize it or not because I like having those people in France and Japan and we even have listeners to the podcast in Cambodia for crying out loud. Mm. I think that's cool. And if it takes uh, adding a little color to do it, by all means, colorize away. So, you know. No, I think you make strong points and I think I think I agree with everything you said. You know, this no place to hide colorization, the technology they're using now is so much better than what I was thinking of when we talked about it, I guess, <laughs> in that first episode, because the colorizations I've seen previously were pretty chintzy. They didn't really look that realistic. This thing's pretty nice. And so if they can do that kind of quality, it's not going to replace the black and white for me. I prefer the black and white because I think a lot of those episodes, frankly, work better in black and white. But like Mike Clark made the point, if Lost in Space had premiered a year later like Star Trek, it probably would have been in color. So you're not really killing anything as long as we can still watch them in black and white. And if it opens up the audience, I think it would be well worth the investment. Yeah. uh, We don't want this series to be like Dr. Smith with so many of his little plots where it's our little secret. Mm. You know, we want other people to enjoy it. So uh, not only do I hope that they do it, I hope they're successful in doing it. And I hope it, it catches Lost in Space up to a lot of the ground that it lost to Star Trek. Because, you know, Lost in Space has something very special about it. It has an initiating episode where it shows you them literally launching into space. Star right. Trek doesn't have that. So many series don't have that. There's not like a first episode of Bewitched. They're just there. And here, uh, Lost in Space, you see them launch out and start out and discover this planet. And that's all in the first season. So colorization brings all that back to the front. And I hope that you know people see it, appreciate it. And I have no doubt that it's going to increase the audience 
dramatically. Will it bring it up to the level of Star Trek? I don't know. But you've taken the best season of Lost in Space and you've taken it off the shelf for the vast majority of the audience. So it's little wonder that Star Trek had that kind of jump on Lost in Space. I'm not saying Star Trek is equal to Lost in Space or Lost in Space is as good as Star Trek. They're two completely different things. But I do think that one of the reasons that they get such short ripped is because the best season they did has been hidden from the general audience because of this colorization issue. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny, Kurt, now that we've sliced and diced and (laughs) nitpicked to death every episode of season one, I have to say, you know, this experience has made me appreciate Lost in Space even more than before. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I'm enjoying, you know, Uncle Irwin learning more about him. And one of my favorite sources of that is that Lost in Space Forever book by um, Joel Eisner and Barry Megan. Yes, and they they had a lot of fun stories. And then one of my favorite one I want to share with you now, this is one from Don Richardson, director of Follow the Leader and several other great episodes. So envision, if you can, Don Richardson telling this story, okay? He says... I had been with Alan about three or four months, and I had an office in that crazy building Irwin had there with that red rug and the robot standing outside the office. I had an office like all the other offices, which had nothing except a desk, a chair, and an empty bookcase. No Mm. pictures on the wall, no nothing. It was very impersonal. I got bored of it, so one day, Jimmy Hassinger and I were out hunting down props, which is something we were always doing, trying to find interesting things to steal from other pictures, which apparently they did do that a lot. (laughs) Uh, They had the greatest prop shot in all of Hollywood at the time. It was a real great museum. I saw a head of Mussolini, a plaster bust of heroic size, and it was the official Mussolini bust from the Nazi period. It was the one that stood in front of the post offices, his official portrait with the helmet, the big army overcoat on its shoulders. (laughs) And I said to Hassinger, will you send that up to my office? It would be interesting to have that in there just to liven things up. And he said, sure. So uh, up comes some big drunken stagehand carrying a crazy bust. And he says, where do you want me to put this thing? And I said, I'll put it on top of the bookcase. So Tony Wilson came in and he fell down laughing when he saw it. He thought it was so marvelous. (laughs) Various other writers like Peter Packer used to break up looking at that thing on on my bookcase. And about three days later, I was at this big production meeting in Irwin's office where they'd had the conferences for each of the shows. Irwin comes running in with his assistant, Frank Lauderette, behind him. And he says, stop, stop everything. I, I just saw an office with a bus of Mussolini in it. Well, what is that? We, we've got people here from the networks. We've got sponsors. And M- Mussolini was a fascist. Who, who's got Mussolini in this office? And I said, well, well, I do, Irwin. And he says, well, what? why? And I said, go back and read the caption. You see, I had typed up a little caption and placed it under the bus. So Irwin says, don't do anything. And he runs back to the office and he comes back with this piece of paper and he reads it to everybody. And it read, every boy must have a father image. He blinked at me and he said, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, Irwin, you're always talking about schedules, right? Everything must be on time. Well, Mussolini was a master of schedules. He's the guy who made the trains run on time. And Irwin said, did he, Lauderette? And Lauderette says, yes, sir, he, he did. He got the trains to run on time. And Irwin says, oh, well, well, in that case, I, I guess it's fine. And then he says, how about changing the caption to read, every boy must have a father image to stay on schedule? And I said, if that's what you want, Erwin, fine. So I did. And I put that on the caption. But about two weeks later, 
I found Erwin standing at the top of the stairs when I came back to work, and he was rubbing his hands. He used to rub his hands like a little cricket all the time. He was this real tiny guy with about four feet of Brillo hair, and he said, I loved your show. I thought it was terrific, and I've got a surprise for you as a reward. If you go in your office, you're going to see the surprise. So I walked into my office, and I found he had brought a life-size bust of Adolf Hitler. And I, I thanked him and I shook his hands and he said, I told him it was very nice. And Erwin, he just had no sense of humor at all. <laughs> Isn't that rich? It wow. is. I love the image of Erwin standing at the top of the stairs, rubbing his hands together like a, like a cricket. That's so yes, funny. With, a, with a long Marge Simpson shadow of his hair creeping uh, down the stairs like the fog yeah. from Follow the Leader. <laughs> It's funny. Great story. I loved it. I loved it. Lost in Space has been brought to you by... Support for this nonprofit podcast is made in part by... Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com. Well, I guess it's time to say a fond farewell to Season 1 and take a look ahead at Season 2, Kurt. Oh my. As we've discussed, even though Lost in Space was preempted four times during the first-run broadcasts, the challenges of producing the series nearly caused the producers to miss their delivery dates to CBS, and twice during Season 1, they were forced to execute their Space Twins two-for-one episode emergency plan. First for War of the Robots and Magic Mirror, then later, All That Glitters and The Lost Civilization were filmed simultaneously. Erwin Allen did not want that stress repeated, especially since he planned on having three sci-fi series on the air in the fall of 1966, Lost in Space, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and the new show, the time tunnel. Wow, can you imagine that? I mean, he's just gone through this season where he was fighting every week to get his episode on, and now he's going to be doing three network series simultaneously. Incredible. I know. It's crazy. So, he had his TV agent, Herman Rush, push CBS as early as the end of January 1966 for a decision on picking up Lost in Space for another season. With the ratings that Lost in Space had earned, he wouldn't have to wait long. By February 23rd, Variety reported that Lost in Space had been renewed with an initial buy of 16 episodes and an option for an additional 16. The show would remain slotted on Wednesday nights, 7.30 to 8.30 facing Batman for the first half hour, then much less dynamic competition from 8 to 8.30. Once Irwin learned that Lost in Space had been renewed, he vowed to take back the top spot in the ratings from the Caped Crusader during that first half hour by fighting fire with fire. But more on that later. By the time the series wrapped, the deficit financing that Allen and 20th Century Fox had relied on to produce the series for the first season had created a lot of red ink on their balance sheets. Again, Fox budgeted $130,000 to produce each episode, a target that was missed on just about every one. But CBS was only paying $100,000 per new episode. The long game counted on syndication to recoup those losses, but in the meantime, there were two other means the producers used to make up those losses. 
One was reruns. CBS paid 50% or $50,000 for each of the 19 reruns shown during the summer. And two was foreign sales. Fox aggressively marketed Lost in Space overseas, and it was soon a hit, garnering approximately $711,000 that year, which combined with the repeat fees, virtually wiped out the season one deficit. That meant Lost in Space started season two breaking even. From the producer's perspective, that put them money ahead, a situation that actually had Irwin investigating the possibility of producing a Lost in Space feature film during the summer, much like Batman did during the same period. Oh, would that they had. Wouldn't that have been great? Indeed. Well, CBS was agreeable, but alas, it was not to be. Instead, Irwin elected to concentrate on getting season two episodes produced well in advance of the fall, and it would not be until 1998 that a Lost in Space feature film finally made it to the big screen. Oh, the pain. Mm. The pain. The pain, (laughs) indeed. Well, despite the great ratings, Lost in Space received little accolades or even respect during season one. Critical reviews were mixed, and the show earned only one Emmy nomination in May 1966. That being for the special effects work done by L.B. Abbott and Howard Lidecker. They wound up losing to themselves for their work on Irwin's other show, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which is kind of funny. Wow. (laughs) But awards are one thing. What mattered was getting eyeballs watching Lost in Space, and Irwin was focused on that like a laser beam, as evidenced by the fact that during season one, the show started as a very dark and serious film noir-style science fiction show. But then, by the last half of the first season, it had evolved into a more whimsical, fantastical show where the Robinsons were visited by assorted monsters, pirates, traveling salesmen, hillbillies, and even a ghost in space. Oh, and don't forget... Hungry little green onions. Very hungry. (laughs) Well, there would be even more colorful visitors to come during season two. The central plot structure change that developed during season one, which was amplified during season two, was the rise of the Smith, Will, and Robot trio. The three characters were getting by far the most fan mail, and by the last half of season one, dominating the screen time in most of the episodes. Season two would double down on this winning formula. Well, up to this point, there was little evidence of disharmony or friction on the set because of those changes that Lost in Space had undergone. And to keep things happy, everyone got raises for the new season. Oh my. Here's a rundown of those salaries for season two. Jonathan Harris got the biggest raise and became the highest paid star of the show. He went from $17.50 an episode to $27.50 an episode, a whopping $1,000 bump. Yet he still remains the guest star. (laughs) Special guest star, yeah. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Guy Williams went from $2,000 an episode to $22.50. June Lockhart went from $1,500 to $1,750. Mark Goddard went from $1,250 to $1,500, so those three all got a $250 raise. Not bad in 1966. Marta Kristen scored big because during season one, she had only earned $200 a day as a contract player. Now she was guaranteed $1,100 an episode, and that was a nice raise considering the fact that she often only worked two or three days on an episode. Mm -hmm. Bill Moomy went from $1,000 to $1,250 an episode. Angela Cartwright was bumped from $850 to $1,000. 
And poor old Bob May, the man who brought the robot to life, he remained a day player, but he did get a raise. He went from $100 a day to $125 a day, a whopping $25 a day <laughs> raise, Kurt. Yeah, what do you want about, Bobby? That's now 125 a day. That's only $225 less a week than what Judy gets paid just to stand around and look beautiful. <laughs> so, but, you know, it's like they say in that movie, The Prestige. Nobody cares about the man in the box. I guess not, and he still wasn't getting credited on the screen either, but he sure did make that robot sing, I tell you. Yeah, and you made some comment that at one point he was gunning to get his voice. It had already started out as Dick Tufeld, but after it had already started and people got used to Dick's voice, he wanted him to go to his voice, and he was he was agitating for it. Mm. Uh, that wasn't going to happen. It wasn't in the cards. No. Which must have been very frustrating to him. Negative, that does not compute. Mm. Despite the fact that everyone was making more money, the spirit of harmony that had reigned during season one would be challenged during the new season. But stay tuned for that. Hmm. Well, regarding the production staff, script editor Tony Wilson was retained, and his new contract also gave him a boost in pay. He was guaranteed $1,500 a week for a minimum of 40 out of 52 weeks. Associate producer Jerry Briskin was moved to Time Tunnel and replaced by 53-year-old William D. Farrella. Farrella was well-respected by the cast and crew and seemed to work out well for season two. Replacing cinematographer Gene Polito and his various fill-in DPs at the end of season one was 58-year-old Frank Kit Carson. Carson came to Lost in Space just off a three-season run on My Favorite Martian. Carson's job would be made more critical by the fact that Lost in Space would be making the jump to color for season two. That would bring challenges as well as budgetary concerns. Color photography added an average of $25,000 per episode, so Fox increased the target production budget to about $160,000 per episode. Hmm. Carson would take several episodes before he settled into his own style for the out-of-this-world color palette that would be featured in the new season. Speaking of that, the art direction for Season 2 would also be in step with the popular trends of the time. In fact, it would be practically psychedelic, featuring, for example, purple rocks, red shrubs, and even a green lady in space. All that exaggerated color in the background was how Uncle Irwin Allen assured 12-year-old actor Bill Mooney not to fret too much about his freckles being noticeable on color TV. <sighs> Filming for season one ended the 8th of April, 1966, and wouldn't resume until the 21st of June, 1966. That gave the cast a little time off to recharge their power packs. Once his stars got back in front of the cameras, the early start would give Alan more than enough time to build up a healthy cushion of episodes in the can before the fall premiere of Blast Off Into Space aired on the 14th of September, 1966. <laughs> In addition to being filmed in color, there would be some other obvious and not-so-obvious changes viewers would see in the fall. There was a new animated title sequence that was similar to the Season 1 intro, except that the animated white computer squares on black background at the beginning of the sequence were changed to colorful dots, and the space-suited cartoon avatars of our castaways were changed from all-white to brilliant green, orange, and even pink. And no, that wasn't Dr. Smith's avatar. <laughs> <laughs> the music that accompanied the opening sequence would be the same John Williams' main title from season one. There was a new theme commissioned, but Irwin rejected that Warren Barker effort. 
for a deeper discussion of Season 2 music, you might take a listen to a recent Jeff Bond interview that I did where he goes into a very deep dive of the music of Season 2. Now, regarding costumes, you always have to get the Mr. Blackwell report from me. The castaways basically stuck with their same uniforms that had been introduced mid-first season, with some minor exceptions. Paul Z had designed those uniforms with the idea that season two would be switching from black and white to color. So he tried to give the characters outfits with distinctive colorizations so that even in long shots, the audience would be able to recognize a character by the uniform color. So for example, the parents got green with yellow accents, Don's uniform was rust brown, and the Robinson kids had fatigues that used orange and yellow. Some slight changes that did occur from season one to season two. Penny's season two outfit was changed in that her yellow jumper with orange stripes was reversed to be an orange jumper with yellow stripes. I guess he figured it was better to have Judy and Penny slightly different. That's kind of hard for me to envision. So you're saying it was orange with yellow stripes, but then they changed it to yellow with orange stripes. No, (laughs) you got it backwards. Oh, wait a minute. This is beginning to sound like that episode of Star Trek where, you know, the Riddler was black on one side and white on the other. (laughs) The other guy, but no, I'm white on the other side and black on... Okay, all right. (laughs) Mr. Subtly here. Exactly, exactly. Well, Dr. Smith retained his V-neck velour sweater and turtleneck design costume, but got a color change from a royal blue sweater and light blue collar to a burgundy sweater with a yellow turtleneck collar. So, Well, you know, that, that never worked with me. I never realized they had different uniforms, and I wasn't recognizing them by their, their uniform colors at all. I don't think that translated well with the audience. Well, yeah, I, I'm not sure if that worked or not. But tell me this. You've been to the conventions. When you're at the conventions, are, is anyone wearing these outfits the way that they do Star Trek conventions where they're wearing Star Trek costumes? Well, there was a few. Now, you know, I went to that one convention in October, and because all four of the cast members were actually there, I did see a few people that had dressed up in Lost in Space gear, maybe a handful of people, but... Oh. Compared to, say, Star Wars or Star Trek, there's tons of people dressed up in those outfits and a lot of other outfits I don't even recognize. Lots of cartoon characters. I, I just don't read comic books anymore, so I, I have no idea who half of these <laughs> super. Well, as long as they're not the Furbies, that's all I care about. Yes, the Furbies. <laughs> well, one other wardrobe change that really pleased the cast members were the Season 2 aluminum foil spacesuits, which were now constructed from a newly available space-age fabric. The new suits were not only a lot cooler than the season one outfits, they were flexible enough to actually allow the castaways to sit down in them. Okay, so these are cool, but the real question is, can you microwave the cast wearing that new outfit? Mm, I don't recommend that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as for the Jupiter 2, it also got a facelift. There were some minor interior upgrades, including a fresh coat of paint everywhere. The most notable changes to the gear included the main flight control console. The center part of that console before was used to store the Jupiter 2's single pilot acceleration couch, because originally, only Major West was qualified to pilot the ship. When the castaways blasted off into space this year, Don would be reduced to co-pilot, and Professor Robinson would be sitting in the captain's chair and there would now be two pilot couches on the flight deck. I wonder who who instigated that. You know, I wonder if that was one of those Guy Williams, I want all red M&Ms type deal, Mm, you know. It could have been. 
Yeah, or it may have been to throw him a bone because he was getting smaller and smaller roles. So it's like, hey, guess what, guy? We're moving you up to the captain's chair now. Oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, well, it would have been kind of weird to see him sitting down below in deck with all the women <laughs> and kids, you know. I think yeah, that would Yeah, but have... wasn't, he, wasn't he up in the co-pilot's chair before? There was no... Co- that's the whole point. There was only one chair before. That's what I just got through saying. Oh, okay. There was just originally only one chair. And then for uh-huh. season two, they added another chair. Okay, well, my fault. I never listen to what you say. I just listen to what I have to say. <laughs> my little secrets. No. So they, they moved a chair up there. So how do you know his was the captain chair, though? Was it different in any way? Well, because he's sitting on the left, and that's where the captain sits. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I guess you being a pilot, you would know that. That's one of the very few things I might have some small level of expertise I'm on. glad they teach you something in pilot school. <laughs> mm. Okay. So, gone was that storage bay in the center, and it was replaced by a visually interesting cosmic sensor scope that featured this cool orange moray pattern on it. In addition, the communications panel to the right of the flight deck got some upgrades, including a nicer big screen display, more flashing lights, and a more elaborate radio telescope scanner. I took it the reason that they replaced the radar screen was they were just saving on the animation. Do you think that was the real motivation going on there? It could have been. And it it is pretty cool looking, but it's basically just another mechanical, you know, onstage effect. But it does look cool. Yeah. And besides, how many times can you show that same bleep with the little scanners going? Yeah, but at least it served some function. I mean, now it's sort of like, well, let's check it out on the radar screen. Well, it looks like the same moray pattern as before, you know. So, all right. But it looks cool, so we're all right with it. Exactly, yeah. Well, the robot was also upgraded for the start of the new color season. His improved look included an overall fresh new silver paint job, red claws, and a refurbished red neon chest light. The central control panel on his torso was changed from a silver background to a dark gray background, and all those flashing lights and buttons were now in living color. So that was it. I, I was, something about him, I could, what was the difference? It went from silver to gray. Oh, okay. Mm, exactly. <laughs> he also got a brand new set of rubber accordion legs, and the robot's radar ear sensors were changed from all silver to one red and one yellow. And as we'll see right off the bat in the cliffhanger for Blast Off Into Space, B9's ears are spinning again. That spinning ear feature hadn't been functional since very early in Season 1. The spinning ears didn't last through the entire Season 2, but it was nice to see them working again, at least for a little while. Now, looking ahead to what to expect from Alpha Control Podcast for Season 2, we're going to do a little retooling for our review shows. Why? Because I demanded to be moved up next to the pilot's chair. This is getting ridiculous. I'm always stuck below deck. (laughs) Well, I am getting a lot of testy emails from the production staff and their families, and we don't want to get burned out or worse. And to be honest, the last several episodes we've done have had some pretty long run times, sometimes over two hours. Now, I like those shows, Kurt, and I think those episodes truly warranted that level of production. But I'm expecting that mm, there's going to be a lot of season two episodes that are a little less adaptable to the full radio theater format. Oh, I thought we should have just gone all out and, you know, started listing the phone number and doing a telethon out of the deal. <laughs> just have it go 24 hours, you know. Jerry Lewis. Ham. <laughs> 
So in general, I think I would expect, uh, you know, the run times to maybe be consistently a little shorter than before. We're going to still tell the story, but probably in a little bit broader strokes and try to maintain our high quality standards with music, audio clips, and focus as much as possible on our analysis and discussion. And of course... Yeah, well, I'll I'll believe that when I hear it. (laughs) Well, it still should be a fun time, and I can't wait to get into season two. So we'll stand by for that. Shit, shit, Well, before we finish, let's talk about the cliffhanger that introduces the season two premiere episode of Lost in Space. The scene starts off in brilliant living color inside the Jupiter 2, where a violent planet quake has Professor and Mrs. Robinson and daughter Penny getting all shook up. After the tremors slacken, John checks the seismograph. He decides that he better warn the rest of our castaways that they might be in for a shock of their own. Reaching Major West and Judy at the Deuteronium drill site, there's good news from the Major. They nearly have enough fuel to finally get the Jupiter-2 back into space. But there's bad news from John. The professor advises them to pack up their gear and head back to the ship. The next quake is heading their way. You know, if only our seismologists were as all-knowing as Professor Robinson. (laughs) (laughs) The Major answers, aye, aye, Captain, and sends Judy to round up Smith and Will. On the other side of a hill, we see a solemn ceremony is underway. Dr. Smith, hand over heart, is making a speech next to a memorial of some kind, covered with a tarpaulin, while the robot and Will dutifully stand, listening at parade rest. At the very moment when the memorial is about to be unveiled, the reverent occasion is rudely interrupted by Judy, announcing it's time to go. But everyone greets her with an annoyed, Shh! (laughs) Dad just called and he said there might be an earthquake, right here in this very area. Irked, Smith rolls his eyes and complains. Am I or am I not going to receive the reverence this ceremony deserves? (laughs) Will and the robot wave off Judy's warning. You've got it, Dr. Smith. Exasperated, Judy leaves to help Don pack up, while Smith continues his unveiling. Trying hard to restore the respectful mood, Dr. Smith gives another eye roll and starts over. As I was saying. Then glaring at his audience, he chides. William? The boy instantly places his hand back over his heart. You too. B-9 hears and obeys placing a bright red claw over his shiny, refurbished silver torso. (laughs) Placated, the good doctor resumes. I now unveil this noble monument, a temple of immortality to the living and imperishable memory of Dr. Zachary Smith. Turning to the cloth-covered memorial, he declares, I name thee Spirit of Space. When he pulls away the tarpaulin, we're treated to a weird, modern art-style concrete statue that inspires more confusion than awe in the boys. But Dr. Smith, it doesn't even look like you. They may not be impressed, but Smith is enthralled. It is the abstract, artistic concept of my inner self. Now can we leave? (laughs) My dear boy, have you no regard for the sanctity of this moment? We gotta get out of here. Didn't you hear what Judy said? We might be right in the middle of a... Oh, my God.
right on cue, the area is pummeled by a massive magnitude 10 planet quake, causing everyone to get shaken, not stirred, including Dr. Smith's precious memorial statue. Over the hill at the drill site, Judy's bowled over and Don's violently thrown off the top of the drilling rig. But before we see if Major West survives this unexpected stroke of misfortune, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. (laughs) Well, one thing about Lost in Space, Kurt, that isn't changing in season two, you can always count on an earthquake to shake things up, can't you? Oh, yes. So, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 30 of Lost in Space, titled Blast Off into Space. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.